0: Hello and welcome to the 2020 iteration of Leaves' Festival of Writing and Music, Leaves On Air. This festival would usually take place at Dunamay's Arts Centre and other venues across Port Leash and County Leash. Current circumstances, however, forced a rethink about how we could best bring featured writers, musicians and our audiences together in a safe, engaging and entertaining way. Together with Leash Arts Office, we are delighted to now present a series of podcasts featuring our guest musician... Our guest writers in conversation with festival curator Dermot Bulger. These were recorded recently over Zoom. For more details, see leavesfestival.ie and you can find us on all social media, Spotify and other podcast hosts. Leaves On Air is funded by the Arts Office Leash County Council and produced and presented by Dunamay's Arts Centre.
1: Leaves. I try but fail to remember the name of the girl I met. Only how the taste of cigarette smoke and lipstick on her lips as we kissed in a lane off Grafton Street, more than justified my decision to miss the last bus and have to walk three moonlit miles, instincts alert to navigate certain corners where skinheads looked. I drop my tough man pretense and pause in my walk, at the corner where Jamestown and Clune Road meet, recognising this as the space where I'm finally safe. Part of me stands there still, decades later, sheltered by the leaves of hedgerows, by leaves of a silver birch, staring across at the downs buttercross buttercrust bakery gates, where smoke wafts up as bakers prepare a new batch. The night air around me is suffused, just as I am suffused to my soul with airborne particles of flour and yeast that I ingest with each exultant inhalation of breath. The aftertaste of our kiss now infused with the scent of leaves and bread being baked on a sleeping street. Welcome to the Leaves on Air podcast series. My name is Dermot Bulger. My guest in this episode is the writer Hilary Fannin, talking about her acclaimed debut novel, The Weight of Love, which has been described by Anne Enright as heartache for grown-ups that pulls you in and does not let go, and by Marion Keys as beautiful and painful, shot through with nostalgia for earlier selves. Moving backwards and forwards in time between London in 1995 and Ireland in 2018, the weight of love is an extraordinary exploration of how we manage when the notes and beats of our existence, so carefully arranged, begin to go awry. It is an intimate and moving account of the intricacies of marriage and the myriad ways in which we love and can be loved. Hilary Fanning worked as an actor throughout the 1980s and 90s. Her first play was staged at London's Bush Theatre, and since then she has written numerous stage and radio plays. She was joint giant writer in association at the Abbey Theatre for its the centenary year of 2004. She is co-creator of a playwriting course run by Fighting Woods in association with the Abbey. Her acclaimed memoir, Hopscotch, was published in 2005. She began writing for the Irish Times in 2004 and currently writes a weekly column for that newspaper. She was named Columnist of the Year at the 2019 Newsband's Irish Journalism Awards. It is my pleasure to welcome Hillary. It's a pleasure to, to talk to you again uh, we're talking after many years because uh, I knew you first in a previous I mean, I, I know you in your present incarnation as a writer I've, I, I've just finished your extraordinary novel and, and I really enjoy your columns in the newspaper and your memoir Hopscotch was so vivid an evocation of the Dublin of its time, but I knew you first as an actress and uh, when you were making your way as an actress, was there always this ambition to be a writer as well, or did there something that, that came later?
2: I think possibly, the in a way, possibly the writing came first. Mm-hmm. Like, um, I, I was an actor in the 80s and part of the 90s, and it was a lovely time and it was a privilege. And during that time, we did the Lament for Arthur Cleary, your play, which was a real highlight of my career because we brought that to Edinburgh, do you remember? And we won the Fringe first? We and, and,
1: and, and all, all kinds of strange places. It
2: was, yeah, it was great. But I mean, that was, a, that was a very good moment. And I had very good moments um, working in the Peacock with Mac, Tom McIntyre and mm-hmm. with Michael Harding and some new plays. But acting is a really, really tough business. You know, mm-hmm. as you know, years before when I'd been in school and I didn't have a very successful career in school, the only thing I could really do was write essays
3: mm-hmm.
2: and I used to kind of get away with murder because I could write essays and I couldn't do anything else. You know, I couldn't add, subtract, multiply or divide, but mm. I used to get a bit of a, bit of an easier ride because I could, or if something needed to be written, you know, like an intro for the school play or something, mm-hmm. you know, they'd.
1: And um, the first things you wrote were uh, plays and your first play was, was essays by, by the Bush Church in London and you've been associated yeah. with, with the Abbey. Yeah. And uh, reading the book I found it very fascinating because uh, some years ago I adapted Ulysses for the stage and I found it was really brought home to me the difference between a novel and uh, a play because a play has to be like a film has to be very very linear by its nature it has to have a central focus it has to be honed in on one character or two characters on their journey and it can't really uh, digress too much. Whereas uh, a novel like Ulysses is able to have, there has no minor characters. They, it goes in all directions. And The Weight of Love also has no minor characters. It, everybody is given their full say. Everybody is given, I mean, a, 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 a character like Helen, who seems a very, very minor character, becomes quite central later on and i love the great democracy of the book to describe the book very simply uh, and it's not a book you can describe simply but it is about a couple um robin and Ruth, who meet in london in uh, 1985 he's a teacher and she is a uh, uh, she, she's an, an an sna in his school he's immediately attracted to her she is immediately attracted to his friend Joseph, who is an artist and a rather dangerous sort of soul and troubled soul. And uh, so their love is unrequited on her side. But uh, it, we switch forward twenty-three years, and now Robin and Ruth are married. They're living in in Dublin. They they have a a child. Well, she has a child with Joseph, and so Robin is like a surrogate father to Joseph. And. Their life's, their, uh, life really work, works out as planned. Noel no Coward said that uh, living your life was like being asked to give a violin recital in public while learning how to play the violin and so That's in some crazy. ways this is where they realise that they can't <laughs> play the violin and so you actually have, it's a book about love, it is a book about relationships but it's also about how difficult and tawny relationships are, and and how how did the book come about? Uh, how did you begin to find these characters and and to go on such an extraordinary journey? Because the book expands out to bring in so many other smaller characters who become very central to it. Mm.
2: Um, well, I think that um, you know, I mentioned earlier that when I was an actor, I I had the privilege of working you know with some playwrights who were developing their work in the on the rehearsal room floor. Like that was with you, that was with Tom McIntyre and with Michael. And during that time, I became very interested in, I suppose, on, in how story happened, how narrative happened, how story came about. And, um, you know, after many years of column writing and playwriting, I had this sensation that I really wanted to grasp hold of, of something that I could really control. It's like as if I'd been driving, riding a bicycle for ages and having a laugh, but I really want to get behind the wheel of a car and see what that felt like, you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. And so it was back to looking at all the kind of narrative structures that I'd been involved with in my life, especially as an actor. I had this, it was only a sense in my heart or soul or whatever And it is just that thing that you wake up one day and you're 50 something and you just say, is this the shape of my life? Is this the shape of my story? And people make these awful assumptions that when you get a little bit older that you're kind of spent or you're done or you're you're in your box or you've been, you know, you've been packaged. And I don't believe that. And so. I thought a lot about the past in London and I thought about now and and then I started making like little flights back and forwards between the past and present Mm -hmm. and writing little islands and then understanding, begin to understand how to pull those islands together and make a bigger narrative.
1: I remember going out to do um, to visit a book club, something I really do in mm. Kildare. In at the, at the time when the Celtic Tiger was collapsing, and suddenly loads of people were being were being forced to retire early or lose their pensions, and suddenly mm. people who were expecting to work till sixty five were retiring teachers and guards and things at, at, at sort of uh, you know at, at, at fifty eight, fifty nine. I remember like meeting someone from the book club. Uh, Two years later, and saying, How's the book club? and said, Well, everybody divorced. And (laughs) they all took early retirement and they all were suddenly at home with people whom they thought they knew but didn't know uh, on a 24 hour basis. And that that it was a catalyst to that. And some is the catalyst for the the breakup, uh, it's not ever quite a breakup, uh, it, uh, the fracture in the relationship and the marriage of Robin and Ruth is the fact that the, that her son Sid goes to um, Berlin crazy. to try and find himself. And, and and there is that sense that very often that that um, when you reach at the, the time of your life, you're so engrossed in other people, you're so engrossed in the responsibilities of parents or anything else and you don't really have time to be yourself. And then suddenly when a child flies the nest or oh, when you change jobs suddenly you suddenly have to look in the mirror and say well who who am i yeah, is, is am that I? The, yeah. the characters are out in the book
2: they absolutely are and i mean i think at one stage um robin does literally look at himself in the mirror and um he's been he's been given a joint by that girl celestine that he meets and mm-hmm. they go to the chipper and uh, he's a little bit stoned for the first time in about 30 years and he looks at himself in the mirror and he sees the veins on the back of his legs and with like a road map you know and he hmm he doesn't know where the map is going and he's very kind of confused. And, but I think, I think that it is, it is kind of set in train by, by Sid going to Berlin. But basically what happens in the book, I think is that, you know, neither of them really have relinquished the past. You know, Mm -hmm. they met in, in, in very kind of ordinary circumstances. We are often involved in love triangles. You know, you fancy Mm -hmm. someone and someone else doesn't fancy you. And you know, this are, we, we experience breakups that are very painful and, you know, they, they are. Their past has run along quietly, run alongside their their, their present,
3: mm-hmm.
2: pretty much all the time, and I suppose it's been kept embodied. It's in, their past is embodied in Sid,
3: mm-hmm. in so
2: far as he is Joseph's child, and when he goes, you know, there is this kind of chasm that they're both looking into,
3: mm-hmm.
2: and it is and it is that thing of who are we and how did we get to this point in
1: our lives? I think it's an odd relationship because what actually happens, as as I say, is, is that uh, he's a teacher in London. She moves to London. She yeah. does some work in his school. He's very protective of her. He immediately, he introduces her to Joseph or Joseph intrudes in their life. He knows he's lost her to Joseph. Uh, she becomes pregnant with Joseph. She goes back to Ireland and, and he finds her. And so in, very often in marriages and love stories, there is this point where, there is an equal love, but both parties feel an equal love for, for 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 each other, and then maybe one begins to feel less love than the other. But mm-hmm. in always through the book, there's almost there's no point where they both have an equal need for each other. There is that sort of imbalance always in the relationship to the point where finally uh, he actually has an affair, and it's mm-hmm. almost as if that that changes the dynamic as well for him because he he's yeah. out of the spell of that after after almost quarter of a century. Does that make sense?
2: Um, It made sense to me. And sometimes, you know, and I I kind of thought the book was kind of quite light, you know, Mm -hmm. comedy. And um, then sometimes, you know, people meet and say, God, that's, you know, that it's a little bit bleak. You know, these people, their relationships are a little bit bleak, but I think they're just very, very realistic. You know, I mean, we marry or we get together for all sorts of reasons. And you mentioned Robin's protectiveness towards Ruth, which is absolutely key to how he is towards her. And her need for that protectiveness at some stage kind of pushes it the other way and they end up together. And they have what he describes as a courteous marriage. It's not a passionate marriage, but it, it's a work. It works. I think that we go backwards all the time. To, I think we take in our lives one step forward and 800 steps backwards. So if you look at generational trauma, if you look at the way that we are at the families that we are born into and of the things that we learn to respond to, I mean the piece I want to read for you is just a little section between Ruth and her mother. And you know, her mother, at the end of her life is beginning to kind of unravel herself and look at her mm-hmm. own coldness. And mm-hmm. Ruth's father suffered from depression. And I mean, God, I'm making this sound like this most depressing book. And actually there's kind of funny bits in it. So what Ruth responds to maybe is not great warmth and, mm-hmm. you know, crack and camaraderie. Ruth responds to something a lot stiller.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: She responds just to, she's quite wary. She's quite a wary person. Mm-hmm. And so it takes her a long time to come towards Robin. I, 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 at I, I, the end, after his after he meets Celestine and he begins to recalibrate his life mm-hmm. and she goes back to London and she mm-hmm. she looks at what her past really was, mm-hmm. she meets the reality. She understands something really fundamental about Robin and about herself. It just takes her a really long time to get there.
1: Do you, do you want to read the extract to give us just a flavour of, 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 of the writing? Yeah, I don't
2: know if this is very typical of the book.
1: Um, well, I was wondering not. about the book that you know, there's nothing typical in the book because it comes from, it has so, so multi-faceted and there's so many sort of uh, narrators going through it. So it actually, so it is, I, I love that the book is moving. It's very, very fluid in, in, in how it tells a story, you know?
2: Thank you. Well, look, I tell you, this is um, basically Ruth has discovered, has found out about the affair that Robin is having with Celestine. And she decides to go home for a couple of days uh, to visit her mother, who lives outside of Dublin. <clears throat> and um, and when they arrive, when she arrives at her mother's house, she realises that she's out of cigarettes, she's taken up smoking again. And so she brings her mother to a bar that she used to frequent when she was a girl in the town, that Ruth used to frequent, okay. So they go into the bar, the bar is called Patriot. Ruth took in the unfamiliar surroundings. The televisions and bar stools she remembered from her days hanging around this place were gone, and so too was the tincture of urine that used to snap at the mongrel air. Rows of optics hung jewel-like behind the bar. The room was furnished with low couches and smoked glass tables. Synthetic music emanated from somewhere. Isn't this marvellous? Her mother said. I haven't been here since the night your father died. Her mother, who had become alarmingly perky since the decision to go back downtown had been made, took a seat while Ruth went to the bar, where she was served by a startlingly beautiful man. He gave her a token for the cigarette machine and said he'd bring the drinks to their table. Such lavish beauty for a drizzling Tuesday, Ruth thought, going out to the beer garden for a fag. Outside there were fairy lights and overhead heaters and a trellis of plastic ivy where there used to be crates and barrels and a floor mop in a filthy bucket so stiff with dirt it could have pirouetted the length of the town and back. Artem is getting married, Ruth's mother told her when she returned. Artem. Artem, the barman, he's from Latvia, a summer wedding. He's marrying his boyfriend. Well, I said, your boyfriend is one lucky man. Cheers, Ruth. Cheers. I would have liked to marry a woman. Would you? Ruth thought she was hearing things. Oh, not for the sex, although I suppose you never know until you try it. But for the companionship, my God, but your father could be very bleak sometimes. Oh, this is marvellous. It tastes like bitter lemon. I thought I ordered wine. You did. I told Artem I hadn't set foot inside this bar since the night your father died, and he said he had something special for us and that it was on the house. With the second Negroni's Ruth's mother was kicking down the doors to the past, and the past, the vulnerable sod, was crumbling. Your father put his foot down. No more babies, he said. I'm not having you in that state again. I thought you were the one who didn't want any more children. I never said that. Ruth had a headache. Whatever distraction she'd felt by re- revisiting the Patriot had subsided. You were an angry baby, Ruth, furious. I'd go as far to say off-putting. The nurse handed you to me and she said, Well done, pet, it's a girl. i never forget it. I looked at you with the wet little bowl in my arms and I wanted to correct the woman. She should have said, Well done, girl, it's a pet. Ruth's mother took a long drink. You were terribly fairy, Ruth, so I believe. Very and furious. Take it back, I said to the nurse. Back where, says she. They took you anyway. Dressed you up in a little yellow cardigan. Are you absolutely sure it's a baby, I asked the midwife. It looks awfully like a knotter. I thought I looked like a vole. They put me to bed with a valium and a pair of plastic pants and telephoned your father. I'm surprised they didn't put me in a straitjacket. Of course, when your father arrived, you're as good as gold, asleep in his arms, flaky and puffy and human, your little skull pulsing, and I was the one who was behaving like an animal. Ruth sipped her drink. When Sid had been born, she had looked into his eyes, spilt ink, neither human nor inhuman, and there was a moment when everything that there was to be known about him was known. His fate glimpsed, and then the shutter had closed. It's okay. lovely.
1: It's perfect. It is lovely. Ruth's father is mentioned there, and a, it, he 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 dies quite early on. Though there, there is a moment when they go walking, and he he mentions Christian Brothers, and he mentions he he's just a very sort of careful Irish father who doesn't really say anything, uh, mm-hmm. but says an awful lot in the things he does. But what's interesting about the book is that although it's about a triangle relationship between Ruth and Robin and Joseph, it's mm-hmm. also about four different women and their relationship with their Mothers, there are quite difficult relationships with them. for four people, sorry, and because there's also there, there is uh, Robin's mother and, and there's Joseph's mother, mm-hmm. and there's a great absence of father figures in the book mm-hmm. apart from from uh, Ruth's father. Was that a deliberate thing, or did that just simply evolve that it became very much about the relationships between people and their mothers?
2: Uh, my mother had I'd been very involved in my own mother's care for for a while, and for the couple of years before she died, and I had kind of begun kicking the sand around in this book while, while I was still caring for her, and then um she died and um, and and at that point, I began to write the book in earnest and i I think that really I was examining my relationship with my my own mother with Mary. A lot of my friends ended up with elderly mothers mm-hmm. whose their fathers had gone. that theme seemed to be running through my life. Mm -hmm. coming to terms with your relationship with your mother Mm -hmm. and in robin's case ushi his german mother it becomes ill and i was able to exercise a lot of my feelings about mary through robin robin was my like my linchpin Mm -hmm. like robin is a very decent character you know and he as you mentioned he parents sid you know who's who's his best friend's child and at one stage, he finds a photograph of Sid in his mother's studio. She was a, His mother was a potter. And the photograph is all kind of covered in dried um, clay. And he and he looks at the photograph and he says, the beautiful boy is the best thing that ever happened. You know, and Robin is able to love generationally going forward. Robin is able to, Andrews, you know,
3: mm-hmm.
2: they love Sid. You know mm-hmm. what I mean? What survives in them is enough love to pass forwards. You know. And
1: it was also within Robin's mother, uh, the German part of the viscus the the way in which um, Robin and Joseph meet is really interesting as well, because again, you actually have uh, him living in West Cork, Robin with his mother, and then Joseph and his mother turning up and Joseph's mother being totally uh, distracted by a man. And, and basically Robin almost like, who's very, very good looking, very, very artistic and very, very troubled, uh, having to like, Attach himself to wherever he can find home, and he winds up like sleeping in a sleeping bag at the age of fifteen, and in Robin's bedroom, uh, and and they they form this very very unlikely friendship, and it's it's very interesting the way in which he comes in. It's also interesting how. Um, possibly this is because you have been uh, um, uh, an actress, and you 've seen behind the painter 's stage and everything else that the artistic life in this book is not particularly uh, attractive in, in in that Joseph has a fairly miserable time as a as a painter and uh, and robin 's mother's uh, uh isn 't a great success either so 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 there is there 's nothing exotic in the Bohemian in this book.
2: No, there's nothing exotic in the Bohemian, and there's a kind of it's a it, it's a very very cold reality. Um, and again, there's a generational thing to it. You know, Joseph, who lives as a painter in in you know, and he's very very skint in London, and they're all very very skint in London. And his father was his mother had aspirations towards being a, a painter, and his father had been a, a set a, a set painter in he's Polish, um, <laughs> um, Robins. German mother is a potter in West Cork, which would be very familiar to an awful lot of our readers, you know, and she manages a life. She manages to to make a life, but it's very, it's really on the breadline. You know, it's very, it's a very, very um, hand-to-mouth kind of existence. And she saves up every, she saves up a little bit of the children's allowance for Robin's entire life to give him as a gift when he's 18. You know, I'm, I, I am, um, I have no, um. <laughs> You know, I, I, I grew up as a cartoonist and, uh-huh. you know, my mother would try to be an actress and try to be a singer and all sorts of things. You know, and I know what it's like to be skint. I mean, mm-hmm. I really do. And all the, <laughs> I mean, I really, you know, all the characters are skint. None of them, you know, none of them has a movie made or has a best-selling album. Uh-huh. But they're okay, you know. They're they...
1: are they, finding their own feet.
2: And, and Ruth becomes a framer. Uh-huh. She tries, she... She learns a craft, which is to be a framer. And to mm. me, that was interesting mm-hmm. because, in a way, she places frames over over these small moments in her life. She contains these small moments and she begins to understand.
1: Mm. And, and she achieves the ultimate accolade of modern Dublin life. She gets to live in Stony Batter, which is which is where, 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 where the whole world lives there. <laughs> But there's, there's two cities uh, described very vividly in this book. And there is the, the Dublin of 2018 and there's the London of 1995. Nine, and I, 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 I always felt that you were in love with the London of 1995 with the smells and the sounds mm. and the cafes and the old men in cafes and sort of the underground and everything else. But it's it, it, it described so vividly that, that I really felt I was walking around in it. And, and it, I was wondering, is there one time of someone's life that remains more vivid than every other time and and were you in London at that time?
2: Yes I think so and it's funny because it's a word and I I knew this word once and I can't remember it and I can't find it anywhere and one day I'll find this word and everything will make sense right and I don't know what the word is maybe somebody will know um it's a word that describes when sensation and colour are at their most vivid when you are kind of arrested yeah you look at something that's really familiar to you and it becomes extraordinary and it's probably just mania do you know what I mean
3: Yeah, yeah yeah
2: yeah um but I had a moment I remember in the 90s and it was earlier than 95 because I moved the time frame up in order to you know the way you have to make these things fit but I remember walking through Chapel Market in North London um, and I was probably in my mid-twenties. It was around the time we were doing Lament for Arthur Cleary and mm-hmm. having that sensation of the entire market almost almost reaching out of itself. Uh, that, that whole world became so momentous to me. Mm-hmm. And I think it might have been about freedom yeah. I think it might have been about breaking away from my own past and from a kind of sad love story I was involved in myself. And I think I've got a sensation of freedom and I think it lodged somewhere in my brain. And, and I, I love forgot, London.
1: Do you think because you were in a foreign city and is that what all those Irish people who go to London at that time Are they all, like, in some way, just trying to find a space to be themselves, to escape from the the version of themselves that they had to be in their family life?
2: And look at how many people we knew, it, How many people who went to London? And I mean, I a lot of friends went, um, friends of mine, and they, and without even realizing it, maybe they were there because of their sexuality, or maybe they were there because of their politics, or maybe they were there because of 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 very kind of crushing parental relationships. You know, the the three nurses that um, mm-hmm. Ruth moves in with when she first moves to London, um, you know, they are finding their way in this city as well. And mm-hmm. they are being, the, being people that they couldn't, you know, they're still very domestically kind of contained people.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: But there's a wildness there. And there was a wildness to London in the early 90s that I experienced, certainly, you know, especially among Irish communities. And there was, you know... But that's that moment in your life where you see things, where there's a kind of newness where you see things that yeah. you glimpse something. You glimpse possibility.
1: Yeah. The pace of the book is extraordinary because it keeps moving, it keeps changing, the direction keeps changing as, as people think about different parts of their life. Mm-hmm. And I sort of felt that it would make a great natural film because it, it already had all the cutting done, if that makes sense.
2: Yeah. Yeah, and I think that's probably from, you know, I think that might be from from years and years of column writing. (laughs) It might be from years of writing um, 760-word little kind of tiny little stories. It's almost like writing flash fiction every week when you're writing a column. But I think that it's interesting because, you know, like you know from making plays that you have scenes You know what I mean? And and as you know, very well on the rehearsal room floor, those scenes, just like Claire is describing, Mm -hmm. can be reordered, they can be, they can be, you know, tossed around. And I think that that, that, that's how The Weight of Love came came out, really. Mm and again, some maybe it was also a fear of having written plays and written columns about what it would actually be like to try and wade your way through eighty thousand words, mm-hmm. you know, which just feels like Everest really. So if you break them up, like yeah. like you break it up, mm-hmm. I think my head was naturally breaking it up and going, mm-hmm. Oh God, okay, I can put that bit over there for a while and then see mm-hmm. what happens now, you know.
1: One of, the plays I, one of the plays I did immediately after uh, the Lament for Adler which, which you were in, was uh, a little play called "The Holy Ground in the Gate And It was about a man who was like in, in spook and who was like an advocate of uh, campaigning against divorce who hadn't spoken to his wife in thirty years, and it was his wife's story, his wife's hidden sort of story. Yeah. And what I found fascinating about the play was that the number of men who came up to me, like successful businessmen and things, and said has my wife been talking to you? Are <laughs> oh, the number of people who d- decided the play was about them? i get letters. Uh, people I, I'd never met whatsoever. I mean, do, do people sort of, ha- have readers identified with this book and do they identify with certain characters? And, and you, have you got very odd feedback on the book?
2: I, 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 It's interesting. I think the a lot of the women who've read the book have come back to me and they identify with Ruth and Mm -hmm. ostensibly Ruth is chill. It can be seen to be a little bit chilly and reticent, like I have said earlier. And she kind of goes through her life, maintaining a kind of um, quietness or anonymity behind the person that she puts forward. Mm -hmm. But you know, in that, you know, but she's paddling really, really fast to keep Mm -hmm. going. And she's paddling really, really fast to manage her own past and to stay in the now mm-hmm. and an awful lot of women have identified that
3: yeah yeah which, yeah which
2: is which is not like saying oh my god you know with helen it's different you know helen goes to white Watchers. she wears a big yellow dress and her mother tells her she looks like a field of buttercups you know like people can identify with that like oh my god i know it's like to be on a diet or whatever but actually what they're coming coming back to all the time is roots is this kind of undertow of how we how we have how we are how we carry on our lives sometimes, mm-hmm. despite an internal loss, sense of loss, it yeah. is so enormous, it's like a lake within us mm-hmm. and and, like I see this book as Ruth managing to navigate that mm-hmm. and come back to herself mm-hmm. after a long, 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 long time.
1: So did this book begin by being about Robin and becoming about Ruth for you? It began and your-
2: being about Ruth, right? Sat down to write it. Every time I tried to write anything about Ruth, I practically fell on the floor with exhaustion uh-huh. and boredom before I'd written a word. And Robin kept, Robin just in that very nice way he has, kept kind of tapping me on the shoulder and saying, it's fine, you can write about me. I don't mind. I'm absolutely uh-huh. fine with that. And uh-huh. so I'd write about Robin and uh-huh. then I'd come back to it the next day and and Ruth would still be, you know upstairs you know not getting out of the wardrobe and robin would be there again going it's absolutely fine you can continue writing about me no problem and he was just a gorgeous person who kind of took me by the hand and brought me through the book you know and like i was following him and then god now it's probably talking too much but the at the near the end um robin buys himself uh some glasses some new glasses and uh he's worried that they're a bit hip you oh. know, and he gets his haircut and he buys himself a pair of glasses. And uh, and he's feeling kind of really good about himself. And I just felt like, um, but now he's not, he's no Egypt, Robin, you know oh. what I mean? At all. And, and he's a kind of sensitive man. He's an intelligent man. But I just felt by the end that I just owed, I had a great debt of gratitude towards him oh. because he stayed the course with me for the whole book. And I, and I really, I really was grateful to him for that, you know?
1: To, to explain to to uh, listeners who Helen is, she's one of the three nurses who Ruth shares a flat with, uh, and she's but but she's the most settled in some ways in that she she winds up even when in London she's she's dating a guy from Dublin who comes mm. back uh, and, and he sets for business and they live in Castle Lock and they have a nice big house and they have a fish pond and they and that house becomes like a sanctuary for Robin and then a sanctuary for Ruth and some ways she has the most successful life and yet. She's also filled with inner demons and and turmoil as well, and I loved how she got her tone and everybody got her tone, and I loved how the lives were messy, and the lives were unfinished, and the lives were complicated, and the and so I wanted to. We're coming to the end of 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 the podcast, and it's been a lovely, lovely pleasure. Seeing, watching your career throughout throughout time, from from, from being in plays to to drama, to the column, to being a memoirist, to to being a novelist. And I think this is the first of many novels. But I just want to come to the ending of the book, I don't want to give the the ending of the book away. But I want to say it was important for you at the ending of the book, had a certain ambiguity about it, that there wasn't a neat ending because these are about... Very, very real people, very, very real lives. And the one thing that can be said with certainty about real life is that they're never neat.
2: They're never neat. And they don't stay the same. And you just mentioned Helen and, you know, they start off with this kind of nice house on the right side of the park or whatever. But it doesn't stay the same either. You know, they're hit with with boom and bust stuff. They're hit with their own domestic difficulties with their daughters. They, you know, nothing stays the same. Nothing settles. Mm-hmm. And, in the end, there is an ambiguity there but but Ruth has Ruth knows the territory now she knows mm-hmm. the end of one particular story mm-hmm. and Robin has gained independence from Ruth, mm-hmm. and he has gained as often happens through the death of a parent
3: mm-hmm.
2: you know the the kind of corollary that next to the grief there is um there is some kind of freedom to to be somebody else and so they're both standing on the cusp of change mm-hmm. and that felt they're important both, they're
1: both equal in an odd way
2: they're equal yes. they're equal they are now equal like they yeah. are approaching each other as two adult people in their what their late 40s early 50s yeah. and yeah. they're saying to one another well where do we go from here
1: what, what happens next, you know? And I think that that is, it is, it is a, the perfect book to read during, during a pandemic because you get totally lost in the book. You get lost in the characters and you forget the world outside. And this is a world outside we want to forget just now. So Hilary, I, it's been a pleasure talking to you. I wish you every success with the book and uh, I, I, I think uh, Lennon had one objection to the Easter Rising. He said it was too short and only happened once and those are my <laughs> sole objections to, to your novel. So I hope that it doesn't happen just once and I, I look forward to the next book. It's been a pleasure talking to you. Uh, the Weight of Love is, 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 is published by Doubleday and it's, it's, a, it's a pleasure to read Hilary, thank you for your time.
0: Thank you for listening. For more, see leavesfestival.ie or dunamaze.ie. Leaves On Air is funded by the Arts Office, Leash County Council, and produced and presented by Dunamays Arts Centre. We look forward to presenting further podcasts over the months ahead. Dunamays On Air will showcase artists and performers we are sure you'll love to hear from and learn more about. See Dunamays.ie for details.